When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Drill Down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. I'm Corey Johnson with episode number 142 of the Drill Down. Well, just ahead, Facebook face plants, Amazon surges, and what about Google? We're going to give you some big context on these companies based on recent results. Plus, leave it to oil companies to struggle with $90 oil. Yes, $90 a barrel right now. We're going to talk about how one big driller is discovering new oil while managing the risk of high prices. And a fascinating company bringing new technology to the apartment business. We'll talk to Latch CEO Luke Schoenfelder. But first, it's sponsor time. The Drill Down is brought to you by ERA. Never miss another critical event or insight ever. With ERA, customize your company watch lists and track key events, mentions, filings, and more, all within an easy-to-use, customizable interface. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And you can check out The Drill Down on any of your favorite podcast platforms or some of them that might stink. I don't know, whatever you want. But hit the subscribe button and make sure you catch every single show. And the drill down is brought to you by Brain Trust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Brain Trust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com. That's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. I'm Corey Johnson. Welcome to the drill down. We've got business stories behind stocks and a move. And wow. Uh, it's been an interesting few days, an interesting day, an interesting week, interesting month for stocks. And the business results that we're seeing are really interesting right now, Isaac. Yeah, they are. Corey, what stocks are you drilling down on today? Let's start with Alphabet. Alphabet. Alphabet trades under Goog, G-O-O-G, formerly known as Google. Shares have gained 37% in a year. Uh, but there's been significant movement. If you look at a five-day chart of Alphabet, uh, it started out 2,600 it reached over just over 3,000 within the last five days. We're back at 2853. But yeah, an incredible move, probably yeah. two weeks, but 20% move, 11% this week. Um, and, and I want to talk about this in the context of Facebook. So Facebook came out with earnings this week, as did Google. Um, and Facebook absolutely, uh, can we say this on the podcast? They, they, they shit the bed. They, they reported yeah. not only bad results and bad guidance, what they really said is that the, that what they'd been telling us about the effect of I'm I'm beyond paraphrasing, interpreting, interpreting. Listen to me, interpreting. They came out and said, "Hey, all those changes that Apple made about how much we can see about customer data that we said wasn't going to affect us much, it's affecting us much." And the business model for Facebook has changed as a result, um, and the stock of Facebook collapsed uh, down, you know, twenty five percent or so. Just an amazing loss of value for one of the biggest companies in the world. I Frankly, I mean, I've rarely seen anything like this for one ginormous company. Again, one of the biggest companies in the world in terms of market value, absolutely collapsing. 
um, in a single day. But, uh, uh, and, and full disclosure, I own shares of Facebook in my personal account. One of the reasons I don't want to drill down on it today because I've got too much bias there. But nonetheless, um, I think there's some context on what's happening out there about first-party data versus third-party data. And if you think of the big giants of technology, of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, yes, Alphabet, they're different in, the, in what customer data they have. Um, and I was talking with my friend James Chakmok, former sell-side analyst, now a buy-side uh, hedge fund manager, uh, interesting, uh, thoughtful guy. And he says, you know, look at it in terms of what's first-party data, what's third-party data. First-party data, Apple obviously gets first-party data. They can see what every individual user is. If they want to, they know a lot about that user. They choose to keep that stuff private and are no longer sharing that with companies that are now third-party collectors of data, like Facebook, maybe always were, right? So if Facebook is collecting data across apps, whether it's a Facebook or an Instagram or other apps like gaming apps and so on that uses Facebook's collection services for customer data, they don't have that data anymore. And it's now third-party and it's distant and it's so anonymized and they're not getting as much of it as they used to that it's really affecting their business. That's what Facebook told us before. Amazon reporting results this week well, they reported great results because they have their customer data because it's their customer. They can see what their customers are clicking at, how much they're spending time on certain things versus other things, what they're searching for, whether they're doing it on the app or they're doing it uh, on, on the web. Amazon has first-party data. Apple's first-party data. Third-party data is Facebook. So what about Google? Well, Google, I think, Isaac, is a first-party data company because uh, they have got the search results on their site They've got Android phones out there, and they're a partner of Apple's. Apple is incentivized to help them succeed as the preferred search engine for Apple devices. And so we saw that in the results from Google, that they are able to get the data that Facebook can't get anymore. And now they're accelerating the use of that data through ML, through machine learning, through the automation of advertising bidding. So advertisers are getting loads of data about the consumer and able to set up real-time bidding, as if it was like a, like a, a quant fund in the stock market, real-time bidding for ads as soon as a certain threshold has been crossed. Listen to Philip Schindler, Google's chief business officer. Uh, in search, uh, I would say we see an emergence of a real, uh, let's call it a better together story fueled by machine learning and automation. Uh, advertisers are leaning more into uh, automation using uh, responsive search ads to create and select the best performing creatives, uh, matching with more relevant search queries using broad match keywords, uh, setting optimized bids with auction time signals via smart bidding. Uh, so those are a few examples. Um, we're using more AI to help advertisers measure their results and bid intelligently with data-driven attribution, for example, uh, which uses very advanced ML to more accurately understand how each marketing touchpoint actually contributed to a conversion, all obviously while respecting uh, user privacy, um, broad match keywords are a big part of this. Um, we have responsive ads on display and discovery. Uh, they use text, image, and video assets from advertisers and predict the best combination of assets to show in any size or format on Google properties or the display network. Um, yeah, so I think AI and ML will only get better and so will our tools. And we're helping advertisers lean into automation and identify new opportunities as a, a central part really of the recovery and growth strategies. So yeah, automated advertising that's showing up when consumers are doing certain things. Google can still do that. Facebook can't. And I think that's why you see a, saw a real divergence in the results both companies reported this week. Now, Corey, what's your next drill down? 
Well, uh, Isaac, I thought we'd look at Clorox. Oh, my old friend Clorox. Trades under Are they an old friend? Oh, yeah. I use a lot of Clorox oh, so. around here. Um, CL, they don't know they don't know that we're all friends, but I know. Yeah, it's one of those relationships. Uh, so you're a Clorox, stalker. You're a Clorox stalker. <laughs> uh, Clorox trades under CLX. Shares have fallen 19% in a year. And if you look at a year-to-date chart, you're still in the red. Started out the year at 174. Now today it's at 165. Not so bad. But you yeah, have to go. Was pro- a, go ahead. This was a pandemic darling. Absolutely, yeah. it was a pandemic yeah. darling, and uh, uh, and they obviously are dealing with a, a you know the pandemic continues the rush to buy Clorox products perhaps not as much. The problem for these guys, you'd think they'd be able to charge more for their products, and perhaps they can a little bit with inflation. But inflation indeed is the problem. Everything from grilling supplies to cleaning supplies. Uh, Oakland, California-based Clorox announcing earnings this week and talking about a real struggle with prices and with what's happening with inflation because their costs are rising faster than they can raise prices, and that's hitting their profits. And so Clorox out with earnings now saying, hey, uh, you know, we can't raise prices fast enough, but we're trying. And so when they look across all of the products that they create, 85% of them will have higher prices by the end of this year than uh, they did just a few weeks ago in 2021. Uh, Listen to what Clorox had to say about inflation. This is a unique environment with an extreme level of cost inflation, Uh, but we do think we've got the right plans in place to be able to rebuild margins. Now for us, that that continue, we continue to believe that's gonna start this year. We think by the fourth quarter, we're in a position where we start that process of rebuilding margins and then fully expect that to continue next year. If I look at our history, this is, you know, the fourth inflationary cycle we've gone through in the last 10 years. If you look at the three previous times we've done this, we've been able to fully price and drive our cost savings program to offset the cost of inflation rebuild margins. It historically has taken us about 12 to 18 months to do that. I would tell you, though, in this case, because of the extreme level of inflation we're dealing with, I expect it to take longer. And yes, Isaac, uh, supply disruption is also part of that concern about what they're doing with rising prices, just getting the stuff that they need, still affecting them even as some of the supply problems in, this, in the global supply chain we've heard so much about are struggling. I'm surprised that it's, that it's, uh, that it's challenging for them to raise prices, to be honest, because Clorox is one of those companies where you would think their products, consumers are willing to pay a little bit more for. Yeah, well, I th- they obviously think that their consumers are going to come back and pay more for, but it just takes them a little while to push those prices mm. through the supply through their own supply chain. Um, and and you know, it, you you'd think that rising prices or rising inflation would would be um, beneficial to these companies, but yeah. maybe in this area you might think that it's quicker than it actually is. But with physical goods, it takes a minute to get that stuff to market and to jack those prices, as they're saying that it's going to take a full year to do so. Corey, what's your next drill down? Let's look at uh, the oil business with $90 oil, an amazing thing. Uh, I thought ConocoPhillips would be a good way to do so. $90 oil and ConocoPhillips is trading at 90 bucks a share. What do you know? Go figure. Trades as COP, shares have gained 110% in a year. And if no matter which way you dice it, uh, go back a year to date, six months, one month. I mean, it's a steady, steady clip upwards. This is really... It's, I've never thought about this company this way. The stock really does trade similar to the price of oil mm-hmm. in terms of exact numbers. Pretty interesting. Um, 
but yeah, you know, it's it's been an, an insane time, obviously, for the oil and gas market. Um, uh, and oil and gas companies are responding as as you would imagine. Now, ConocoPhillips, let's let's you know, for those who don't follow the oil and gas business, your loss number one. Number two, ConocoPhillips is different than Phillips sixty six. That was spun off long ago. That's the downstream company, the gas station company, and they don't. There, this is really a company focused on the upstream part of the oil business, which is finding oil, drilling for oil, and selling that oil and gas. And so ConocoPhillips um, is like so many other oil producers, after years of not drilling, of capping wells, these guys have got 20 rigs uh, operating at the end of last year. They're gonna add four mil, four more that is. Um, They've got nine fracking crews out there. Uh, and they're in some of those regions where horizontal drilling has, pr- has produced these kind of amazing results in in the last couple decades, decade or so. Um, one of them, they've got one uh, new rig plan for the Bakken uh, up in uh, North Dakota. Uh, they've got uh, uh, three more planned for the Permian Eagle Ford uh, plays in Texas. Uh, but uh, these are different kinds of wells. You know, wells that used to go horizontal for a mile or so. On the conference call this week, these guys talked about three-mile wells, three-and-a-half-mile lateral wells that are so big that you need to own a lot of acreage just to drill that far because you're going to be crossing over into someone else's territory if it was a smaller company. But with WTI crude at 90 bucks, as we mentioned, um, all the drillers, not just ConocoPhillips, are picking up activity. And, you know, you've got Exxon saying that they're going to increase Permian uh, activity by 25%. Chevron. Uh, based here in Northern California, but uh, they say their production worldwide up 10% for this year. So according to the CEO of ConocoPhillips, um, crude oil production in the U.S. could grow uh, to 900,000 barrels a day over the course of this year. That's 100,000 up from what he had said before. Um, uh, Those are big numbers. And of course, with big production, you can see uh, oil prices fall. uh, And OPEC, while still sitting tight, uh, you know, in terms of production, with prices so high, one might wonder what OPEC's going to do also. If U.S. producers jack production, if OPEC increases production, oil prices are not going to stay high. And the economics of, you know, of this very day, of the beginning of February 2022, might not be around. The question is, is that on the mind of CEO Ryan Lance of ConocoPhillips? You bet it's on his mind. And it is not so much in the back of his mind will listen to Ryan Lance. I think that fits uh, very, not not so much the back of our mind, but right at the, the front of our mind, I am uh, absolutely concerned about. I think the, the one change maybe relative to, you know, late 2014 and 15, the last time we were kind of at these levels is just what is the spare capacity sitting in the OPEC plus group. It was uh, quite a different number back at that point in time. And you can, we could all debate, you know, what that number is, and 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 the fact that the the inventories are down quite a bit globally, and certainly here in the in the U.S. So I think there's a a little bit of time that we have uh, associated with that. But certainly, if uh, we're getting back to the level of growth in the U.S., that you know, if you're not worried about it, you should be. So there you have it, Isaac. If you're not worried now, maybe you should be, and you should be thinking about what's going to happen if these prices stay so high and companies start jacking production left, right, uh, and center. 
Um, it's going to be an interesting one to watch. And I think it's also going to be interesting to watch for the companies that provide the tools for drilling for oil and gas uh, in 2022. Yeah, it's going to be interesting also to watch how uh, activist investors that are pushing the oil companies to go green or green become greener react to this. Yeah, it's it, indeed um, that, you know, they, they even these guys are talking about it and they've got a big shareholder proposal on their um uh, on, on on the ballot for this year at ConocoPhillips about um, how much they should be pursuing ESG goals and what those goals should be and how soon those goals should be on the horizon for them. So uh, an interesting time for the oil business. How soon um, they should be on the horizon? You mean like 10 years ago? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, and, and here's the other thing, like who's going to stop A little driving? late to who's the party. stop using? How much is plastics going to be a part of their production and how much are they going to keep uh, drilling keep that uh, business afloat and what that's going to mean for inflation. All interesting stuff all playing out in the, in, in the oil fields uh, this year. All right, coming up, we got an interesting company to look at, an interesting technology company. It's looking at kind of consolidating technology and apartment ownership for uh, big uh, companies that own apartment buildings. The company's called Latch, and it is a fascinating one. CEO Luke Schoenfelder joins us right after this. The Drill Down is brought to you by Braintrust, a global talent network that matches highly skilled technical freelancers with the world's most reputable brands. Braintrust has helped clients like Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, Porsche, Under Armour, and more build agile tech teams fast at a fraction of the cost. Visit Braintrust.com, that's B-R-A-I-N-T-R-U-S-T.com to learn more. Right, welcome back to the Drill Down Podcast. We're joined right now by the Latch CEO, Luke Schoenfelder. Luke, uh, glad to have you join us. Um, I think it's appropriate that you're in a uh, Manhattan building right now, presumably an apartment building, condo, an apartment something? building, a latch apartment building, uh, living, living my best life. It's great. Um, I want to talk about what, what latch is and latch is an apartment building uh, uh, business. Um, where yeah. is that apartment building you're in right now? Give us some context. Hudson Yards, uh, okay. a neighborhood and a development. Uh, the newest probably in New York City in whatever, 50 years? A while. It's yeah. pretty cool. Um, I'll, 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 we'll, we can debate that later. Um, but <laughs> uh, um, so tell me about Latch. What problem does Latch solve? It's a great question. So for us, we looked at uh, renting a space and it's the world's oldest subscription product and it still sucks, right? Why hasn't it changed in thousands of years? And we looked at it and we said, what are the elements of this experience that are just have too much friction in them? And the first problem that we decided to solve was around keys. So the first thing that happens when you sign a lease is you get a key, it's this manual process, and then it's this thing that sort of uh, changes the way that you live in the space because you're always sort of contingent on having this physical thing with you. And our big idea was if we could take uh, the physical world and make it digital and be able to share permissions the same way that you can add someone to a Google Doc and make physical spaces work that same way, the businesses and the opportunities that you could create were, were really, really exciting. And that was kind of the core of the, the core thesis at the beginning. Uh, and we've now expanded to do lots of other, you know, solve other problems at the building from package management uh, to, you know, security to all sorts of other aspects of, uh, you know, things that go wrong at an apartment building that we think we can do better. Yeah, I think it's interesting. You know, I I can't tell you how many businesses I've I've talked to over the years that like to describe themselves not as a product solution, but as a platform for solutions. And, and why not, especially if you're going to go public, right? Then you can claim to do anything in the future. But I do get the idea that um, uh, that you can start with a lock on a door, but really there are so many interactions that we have 
um, with our, the physical spaces in which we live and that landlords have between tenants that could be um, intermediated digitally if you approach it just as that's the problem. That's right. And, you know, to comment on that, I don't believe in building platforms. I believe that great products can become platforms, but it really has to be a great product. And so for us, if you look now, the average user opens our app more than four times a day. Um, and that, I mean, if you think about the number of uh, apps on your phone that you use that much, you know, we have a very interesting, uh, you know, part of the relationship, as you described, between the space, the owner, the person who's occupying it, maybe their guest. Uh, it becomes a super interesting dynamic that we get to uh, insert new things into. And, and we're excited to continue to do that. So you start with the lock. Um, uh, well, let me back, back up. You probably start with the landlord. You probably start with the building. Well, it, like how the company started or, or when we- no, how, when how, we, how, so how like, business transactions start to work for your business? Oh, yeah. So, you so basically, landlord, yeah. So, then, you know, we, a landlord wants to make their building, they want to solve certain problems at their building, right? They will then come to us or we'll go to them and say, hey, we know you have these problems. Here's the sort of suite of uh, hardware, software, and services that we have that we think can make your building a better place to live, better place to work, better place to visit. Here's what we got. And, and now a lot biggest, of people- The biggest they, seller, the biggest piece of that is, is, is the lock itself? Access is the, is the, biggest, uh, is the biggest piece, but now uh, over 80% of our customers are purchasing something other than access from us now as well, uh, which was you know, really exciting because we only really started selling stuff beyond access you know, 18 months ago. And to have that sort of uh, shift beyond access is, is really, really exciting for our business. On a unit basis, explain how this works. Do you tip? Is there a certain size of an apartment building that you'll sign in or or bring in? You obviously want to have the the biggest sales with the fewest number of salespeople. Yeah, I mean, for for us, we really look at a, a space. Um, you know, Nike has a saying that uh, if you have a body, you're an athlete, and I think if you have a building and you're renting it, like you're you're a latch customer. I would say that where we concentrate our our energy is on some of the larger buildings, like think 100 units or so, just because it's often easier for us to find a central decision maker and work with them, not just at a one building, but say, hey, you have these operational problems at 15 of your buildings. Like, let's come up with a package where we can solve this universally for you. And how do you sign these people? What's the, what's the sales process or sales team look like? Yeah, so we have uh, our, uh, a sales team that's led by our chief revenue officer. Uh, we have account executives. So we typically do an account-based selling model where um, you will have named accounts that you will call on. Um, and what's interesting about the real estate industry is that uh, they cut across geographies, they cut across different asset classes. And so it's really being, you really as a, an account executive at Latch really need to know the industry well, and you need to understand the nuances of each particular account really well in order to be successful. And I think because Latch is good at that, that's been one of our big advantages in sort of going to market is this is an industry that isn't super uh, technology forward. They're a technology laggard. And so to go and say, hey, we have something that's going to solve your problems. We don't care about technology. We care about solving your problems. Here are the problems we think we can solve for you. I would imagine it was a pretty hands-on process in the early days with a new client. It, it is. I, I, th I would say, you know, for us, uh, particularly in the very beginning, before uh, any real estate owners or significant real estate owners had experienced the platform, it was definitely a lot more explaining like, wait, what can I do with this? What is this? How does this work? How does this solve my problems? And now that you have so many people using it all across the country, you know, seven out of 10 of the largest developers are large customers. Um, there's wide sort of understanding of how the system works at the operations team levels now. So even if you move companies, there's just knowledge of how to use these systems like anything else and people are accustomed to it. Let's go back in time, shall we? Talk to me about the origins of the company and how this happened. 
Yeah. So I, uh, you know, I grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania, which naturally sets you up to run a technology company in New York City. Just total linear. With apartment buildings, uh, you know, absolutely. It's easy. My it's easy. Um, no, my great grandmother. I digress, but my yeah. great grandmother, she was always freaked out when I lived when I lived in New York City. Uh, I would tell her, and she's like, "I don't know what it'd be like to have someone living above you and below you." It just <laughs> yeah. completes you because she was in a farm in Iowa and didn't didn't make any sense to her. I so I actually grew up on an apartment built in an apartment building on a farm. So I have this very weird. I was excited about apartment buildings from an early age. It's very weird, and I could spend a a whole an time talking about what it was like growing. Yes. Did exactly. they grow and the that, apartment buildings there? Now I know apartment we grew buildings the come apartment from. buildings. It was a farm of apartment buildings. No, nice. but but actually this was what inspired me at the deepest level was seeing how this community totally functioned. And like I worked for the owners in the barn. That was my first job. Their parents lived there and we would help them because we were their neighbors. And you see this how this ecosystem, when it works well, it works incredibly well. And most apartment buildings it's not that there's bad people. It's not that there's people who want to do a bad job. It's just there's not that connective tissue that makes most buildings work at scale. And so for us, what I'm really excited about is how do I replicate that symbiosis that I had when I grew up? And, you know, that's the big, deep answer of how we got here, I guess. I'm, I, I have to protest the notion <laughs> that Manhattan landlords aren't all, uh, are, there are no bad people among Manhattan landlords. It is not I, true. No, I didn't, I didn't say there are no bad people. I said there Turned. are not all bad people because to be at the end of the day, the person who owns a building, they want to get paid. They want to go home and hang out with their family. Like they don't wake up in the morning and be like, how can I make life terrible for someone in one of my buildings today? But the reality is that there's a lot of problems, a lot of hassles, a lot of things just happen. And technology, we think, can help eliminate a lot of those problems, but also just make it easier to deal with them when they come up. So what does a tenant get out of this? What a tenant gets out of it is the ability to share their space uh, with anybody and never get locked out and then access a whole wealth of other services that can then just make living in that space better, right? We see our, ourselves as really being a, 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 an end user focused platform. Even though we go to market through enterprise, it's a B2B2C experience and play because for us, we want that resident to have this amazing experience and want to do more things with Latch and also choose to live in a Latch building, right? When you live in one Latch building, we're, we already see a lot of people starting to repeat and say, I want to live in another Latch building. And so for me, I use the analogy of CarPlay. I don't know if you have CarPlay or Android Auto in one of your vehicles, but like for me, I would go if I'm renting a car and I have a choice between a you know, luxury car that doesn't have CarPlay and an economy car that does, I want navigation to talk to my mom and to listen to music. That's what I'm going to do in this rental car. And I love cars, but like, that's what people want is that consistency of experience. And so we think we can play a really interesting role in providing the resident that consistency of like, this is just how it works. I can share access. I can get my packages. I'll never get locked out. That's just important because city life, these are things that happen every, 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 every day. And if we can make it easier for you, uh, you know, we think that's a really big advantage. I think the software component, the deferred revenue component is Kind of, kind of the exciting part about this, the part that's really totally. different. I would imagine, totally. however, that you know, here we are, at, you know, at the end of 2021, early 2022, where uh, supply chain constraints are the, are the gating factor for all kinds of businesses. I would imagine um, electronic locks are, are not on, on the rush order item um, in the, uh, in the sh global shipping environment. Well, so I'm, I'm really proud of our team. You know, a lot of us came from, uh, you know, technology companies, supply chain backgrounds, and, you know, we've been able to continue to ship for our customers um, this entire time, which is really hard to do. So I'm really proud of our team's ability to continue to ship for our customers. What we are starting to see is 
indirect product shortages that impact the ability for a space to be brought online. So let's say you're building a new building in the Midwest, our product may be sitting there, but if you don't have paint, you can't finish the apartment. And so that long tail of supply chain challenges are definitely you know, impacting us, but it's not discreetly with our supply chain. And that's, uh, it's frustrating for me because I'm like, oh, we move heaven and earth to actually get our products there. And then like the paint didn't show up. Ah, oh, like that's what's annoying. So what do you see on your end about sort of what's going on there in terms of um, the relieving some of that? Because we've seen some of the numbers show a, a great relief in the supply chain problems, um, whether it's, you know, the number of the long, the waiting times for ships, the price of, 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 of moving things, those are all coming down. But like you said, I mean, I, I last summer I heard a story about a guy who was building a house and he, he couldn't get the hinge he needed for his doors. Yeah. And so yeah. his house just no. sat uncompleted for two months waiting on, you know, six hinges. I'm not a macroeconomist, but what I would say is that, you know, in, in building products, there's just a long ramp time to build stuff, right? And so when the pandemic first started, it's the end of the world. No one's ever going to consume products again. Cities are dead. No one's building anything ever again. And like all of the supply chains constrained, cut their builds. And then six months, nine months later, we're like, oh, wait, just kidding. This is the biggest boom moment in world history. Let's go as fast as we can. And it just takes time to bring that capacity back online and then to ramp to levels that are beyond what they were before. And so if the normal growth curve was this, we said, stop cut back, and now we actually have to accelerate the growth curve. It's just a big thing for every subcomponent to digest uh, in the supply chain. And then you have labor shortages and you have all these other, you know. So the answer is that. you're seeing no change from where we were six months ago. I, I'm not in a position, you know, for us, we are trying to be as conservative as possible and just say, we need to continue to assume that this is going to be something we deal with for the long term. But in our business, which is different than a lot of other companies, because we make our money on the software. Yes, we're paying more for the hardware, but it's really it, we always looked at hardware losses as part of our consumer acquisition cost, customer acquisition cost from the beginning. So like our CAC is effectively going up right now, but we still have every incentive to just keep uh, installing products because the returns are, are really fantastic on those. And where do you imagine the top line going? You know, let's say we're three or four years from now. What piece is going to be hardware? What piece is going to be software? Yeah, like I, I probably shouldn't speak about that just because of, uh, you know, disclosures and all that fun stuff. But what I would say just theoretically is that, you know, we've always focused on software and services. The hardware is the infrastructure layer that enables you to sell software and sell services. That'll be our continued focus is driving more software and service revenue from all the stakeholders at a building. You know, whether it's a partnership with UPS, whether it's, uh, you know, another service, physical service that may need to go to a building, whether it's something we sell to the resident, like renter's insurance or internet, you know, these are all elements that, build on top of our foundational infrastructure and then uh, give us new ways to, to build the relationship with all of the respective stakeholders that are building and monetize them over time. And what percentage of revenues, I should have asked this earlier, but you know, if, if, if most of your product right now is access and so most of your customers right now are the landlords, what percentage of revenue or, or how much do you collect upfront? Is it a year long payment? Is it a six month payment? Cause your deferred revenues continue to grow and it's, for investors, you know, it's it's nice to kind of see that there's money coming in that's already been booked and, and, and is sitting in a, in a pocket somewhere. Absolutely. You know, the average uh, customer signs a contract with us that's over six years, uh, and many of those customers choose to pay in advance. Um, and that allows us 
uh, to have these, you know, incredible kind of working cap capital dynamics where, you know, we'll go free cash flow positive before we go EBITDA positive because of that deferred revenue that you mentioned. Uh, and that particularly early on was a great way that we were able to continue to fund R&D um, without having, you know, to raise additional equity capital because our customers were effectively prepaying us. And because, you know, software margins are what they are, you know, we had a pretty predictable way to finance our growth and finance R&D. Luke Schoenfelder is the CEO of Latch. Luke, thank you for your time. We do appreciate it. Corey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. All right, well, coming up next on the drill down, we'll have the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot about Latch. Look at those deferred revenues when the drill down continues. The drill down is brought to you by ERA. With ERA, give yourself an information advantage. Connect directly to earnings calls and other investor events with live transcription and event intelligence. That's ERA, A-I-E-R-A.com. And let us know which stocks you would like us to drill down on. We could use some uh, some pointers and things you see in the market that you think could use an examination, some special clips from some special conference calls. Let us know where we should be drilling down. All right, we're back with the drill down bite, that one number that tells us a whole lot. Look, this company's all about growth, Isaac. And I think uh, one of the reasons the stock has kind of collapsed is that growth has slowed down. But the numbers are still super impressive. So I'm going to give you their most recent revenue growth number. It's only 11 million bucks, still a small business for the quarter. But in the third quarter of this year, the, stock, uh, the company showed us that $11 million was up 120% from the year before. So a tiny business uh, by market standards, but growing, Isaac, at a rapid pace. Now, the previous quarter, they're growing at 220 uh, 8%. So a big decline in the growth rate, but uh, growing a, a lot. And you see in the that in the share price too, over the past year. Yeah. Yeah. It's, the stock has reflected I mean, the, 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 that it's a small business with a big valuation, a lot of hopes right. for this business, but they got to grow. Uh, this, maybe the stock's too, as my mom would say, too big for its britches. Not Who anymore. Cares? <laughs> it's an interesting company. Less so, I would say. It's britches are shrinking. All right, uh, that is the drill down bite. That is the drill down. We appreciate the time you have given us today. Isaac Webster is our executive producer, Ben Wilson, our editor extraordinaire of the drill down is a production of the Business Podcast Network.